Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Good morning. How many of you have seen that film? Anybody? Okay, we got a few of them that are old enough. Okay, yeah. That was my introduction to church of who God was. It was my first experience of like, I had gone to Sunday school, I had done a few crafts, I would sang a few songs, but this was my first experience of who God was. And it, this, it, this movie is 1971. Um, it was a story of, of how, of, and this is me, I guess, when I was 1971. So imagine this little child being put in front of this film. It was my horror film of a Christian. And um, so anyway, uh, but for me, um, you know, the, the story is about a pre-tribulation view of where Christ would return, he would take out his followers, and the rest of us would be left to be tortured for seven years. And then Christ would return, and then he would, um, you know, he would, t- you know, he would take care of things, and he would end the world as we know it. Um, needless to say, I mean, that was sort of a scary time for me, but it could have been an, an opportunity for me to understand that God was a loving God. He wanted to protect and to save and, and to take care of us. But for me, I got stuck on this. Ooh, I was tortured. Like I even had places like how I was going to store food because I knew my parents were going to be gone and I would be left there to survive on my own. Um, but my story is not about end times. I share that to lay an understanding of, of how my story connects with God. I haven't talked about this film often, um, but it did come up when, I, when Ross and I were working with some pastors on the West Coast. And I shared about how this, this movie had sort of messed up my relationship with God. And wouldn't you know it, one of the pastors that we were talking to was the, one of the main characters of the film. So I completely offended him, and I was like, eh, oh well. But, um, and I do realize that for some, this was how they came to Christ. They realized that they needed him, that there were some serious decisions to make. But for me, it messed me up. Because I couldn't understand how, you know, where does this whole thing of who is God and is he loving? How do I have a relationship with him? It was very confusing to me. So fear started to come in at a pretty early age in my relationship with God. Now remember, late 60s, early 70s, Vietnam War was still going on. Um, It was a lot of protesting and unrest. Um, My mom was great in that she wanted all of us kids to support the troops. So she had us writing letters to the troops at a young age. Um, and I remember being very grateful for the military, but I also remember one of my first memories of sitting on my steps, and I remember planes going overhead our house. We lived in Minnesota, mind you, but I felt like the Russians or the Vietnamese were going to bomb us. That was like, I wish somebody would have helped me with geography, because I don't think Minnesota would have been the first hit. I don't know. But anyway, um, so back to the thief in the night. I, I remember coming home and um, feeling scared, not knowing what to do with this information, and um, because an adult had talked about the age of accountability. You know, I found myself rationalizing in my mind, God really may not know that I'm old enough to make a decision for him, so maybe I'm going to fly under the, under the radar and make it to the rapture. Um, and, and I can't figure out why I had so much turmoil about wanting to choose God. I mean, I was a strong-willed kid, but my biggest issues were, you know, sneaking too much sugar for my Cheerios with Scooby-Doo cartoons on Saturday and arguing with my brother too much. I mean, I really wasn't that difficult of a child. Um, but I do remember an intense struggle. I did not want to follow God. I wanted my own way, but I was scared. And, you know, maybe it was because I just didn't know how to get saved. Um, I didn't know that God wanted a relationship with me. I didn't know he loved me. I knew he was a ticket to getting out of hell and maybe getting taken up with the rapture. Now, during this time, my parents were starting to explore their faith. They joined a, a Bible study, and in this small group, they were studying 
end times, okay? So when this group got together, they got their guitars out, and they started singing that song from the thief in the night. Can you believe it? Um, you know, the words of those songs would just resonate in me. And, I mean, do any of you remember the songs? I mean, think, what kind of child lullaby does this song make? Life was filled with guns and war, and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died. The days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. I mean, that is every child's worst nightmare. I'm going to be left behind. So those, it resonated in me. Um, the next year, my family was making a huge move. We were going to go from the city life in Minneapolis to the country life about an hour away from our extended family. But at that same time, there was um, a man that had broken into my cousin's house who lived a few miles away from us. He had broken in and he had been waiting in the basement of my cousin's bedroom. And he, he attacked their family. Um, she was attacked and my uncle came down. He was attacked. He had 52 blows to the head with a lead pipe. My cousins who were my age had barricaded their bedroom door so he couldn't get in. And miraculously, everyone survived. And I have no idea what it was like for my cousins but I do know that when my cousins came to stay with for us with a, for a while in that recovery process, I, I was left being very scared and what could happen. Um, they came to live with us for a while when we were now moved to the country. And you have to understand, we didn't have any neighbors within sight. There was nobody within screaming distance. And my bedroom was now in the basement. So as the youngest, you know, I had to have that earliest bedtime. Um, and fear became a continual companion for me. Uh, every time I was left alone in the basement, I was scared that I was either going to be, the rapture was going to happen and I was going to be left alone, or that I was going to get attacked. I would die, and because I didn't really have a relationship with God, I was going to hell. A year later, my mom began having more health issues. She, um, she became so bedfast that, I mean, she became bedfast pretty much. She spent, um, she was a very vibrant woman in my younger years, but from the time I was about third grade through high school and into our married years, she um, was, was sick. The doctors didn't know what was going on with her, and it, it caused a lot of frustration for her and for my dad. And it left me feeling pretty helpless. Like, how can I make life better? I just always had that feel of pressure. I do want to note, though, that my mom has received healing, and she is healthier now in her 70s than she was in her 30s, 40s, and 50s, which is really cool. But that left a deposit. Um things of uncertainty. So when it has consistently affected my relationship with God, because my main issue is like, how can I control things in my life? How can I protect my, myself and the people that I care about? From the time I was in third grade then until through high school, my family attended a church where I'm sure the gospel was preached, but somehow the main message that I picked up was that you need to perform in order to be okay with God. If you weren't okay with God, bad things were going to happen to you. And I learned again, control was very important. I wanted control. There were a lot of rules, like you don't wear pants to church on Sunday, for goodness sakes. And, um, you know, most movies from the devil, dancing was definitely from the devil. In fact, sound systems were from the devil. So, um, you know, we had to go through a lot of classes uh, in order. You couldn't participate in communion until you had passed all of these classes. We memorized the Ten Commandments and all of Martin Luther's and commentaries on the commandments that we had to be tested in front of the entire congregation to see whether we had enough knowledge to be able to participate in communion. Um, so I firmly believe that I, if I had sinned, I lost my salvation. I had learned somewhere that prayer of salvation, and I know some of you have done it too, but every night was a ritual. 
I would pray the prayer of salvation. I asked Jesus in my heart because I knew I sinned every day, so I wanted to make sure I'd go to sleep all right. Um, but things, things began to change when I was 15. I saw my second film ever in church, which I didn't think I would ever want to watch a film in church again. Um, but I did. And this one was that cartoon version of C.S. Lewis, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I didn't want to see a film because it had witch in it, and I did not know what the church was going to throw down my face now. Um, but I'm so grateful because in that picture, there was Aslan, the Jesus figure. And it was after he had died for one of the boys, and he had come back to life. And there was a war raging Lives were at stake, but Aslan took time to play and to love on those girls. And that picture has played in my mind over and over again. It was my first glimmer of a God who is really loving. So then, when I was 16, and I was still asking Jesus in my heart every night because I had lost my salvation, I went to a youth retreat. And I was staying in a house with some other girls, and there was someone's grandma there. She was from a different church, and she was our chaperone. And I couldn't sleep. And I, and another, another girl, she couldn't sleep either because we both had these fear about our salvation. So we went and we woke up the grandmother and, you know, we could tell that she wasn't happy to be woken up, but she took the time to share a life changing truth from the Bible that has altered my life ever since she shared a verse that has since become my life verse, Ephesians two, eight and nine, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. I'm like, okay, I was raised Lutheran. Martin Luther, this was his mantra. You know, it's by faith, it's not by works, but I had never grasped that. And it was like, oh, it just sank into my heart and started to bring, rooting it in and pushing fear out. Um, so, I, I mean, that was a wonderful experience. And um, so now I only ask Jesus in my heart when I really screwed up, okay? So I didn't have to be every night. So um, after high school, I went to a Christian university, and this was a pivotal, beautiful time. I learned more about who God is. I learned that he cared for me. I had that he had a purpose for each person. I had great friendships. I mean, I really remember the sunrises and sunsets were so much more beautiful. I experienced an awakening in my heart for God that has never, ever stopped. And I know things were really changing in me because it was the first time I was ever able to sit through a sermon without wanting to scream. I mean, I reached levels of spiritual maturity I did not think was possible for my ADD personality. So it was great. But with that beauty, it was still that underlying tendency to perform. And this was the era of the 80s. It was a prosperity gospel. If you prayed and had enough faith, God would bless you. So if I worked hard enough, if I did the right things, nothing bad should happen to me. It shouldn't happen to anyone I care about. All I had to do was pray harder, have more faith, live a holier life, and I'd stay in right standing and receive blessings from God. But, of course, if anything bad happened, it, it was my fault, right? So um, Ross and I started dating in my sophomore year of college, and sometime later he saw this plaque that I had on my dorm room wall, and it was, God helps those who help themselves. You know, he asked me, like, why do you have this on your wall? And I, I, mean, I said, well, a good friend got it for me when he was on a mission trip to Haiti, and it's just a darn good saying. And he's like, well, it's not in the Bible. And I said, well, yes, it is. I mean, this is my mantra. You work hard and then God will help you, right? And so um, anyway, he was right. It isn't in the Bible. Do you ever doubt that. me? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but I'm not the only person who thought it was in the Bible. You know, Jay Leno did those jaywalking segments where he, where they asked people, you know, can you tell me one of the Ten Commandments? And um, the most common response people had that this God helps those who help themselves is one of the Ten Commandments. It's like, seriously? Um, Barna did a survey among Christians and found out that 82% of Christians agreed that the Bible teaches this concept. 75% of our teenagers believe that it's the central message of the Bible. I mean, I can't even imagine how sad that is. I wasn't the only one. Because, like, when you compare God helps those who help themselves to the Scripture in Ephesians, the first one shows you that God, that you have to show God and then he'll help. But in the second one, God is showing us that we can't earn this. It's a gift. It's just so opposite of the gospel. It makes me think that Martin Luther was so correct in saying that the natural default mode of the human heart is religion. We may think that salvation is a gift, when, but when, then we start back into trying to earn a right place with God. And this has been my journey. It's been a constant journey between the freedom and truth of the gospel and what religion is. So I took the plaque down, and, but yet I still continued my life of performing. Uh, I excelled at performing. I worked hard to meet expectations that I felt God had for me and what um, other people had for me. I worked so hard in my faith that in my senior year of college, I won the highest scholarship on campus for excellence in body, mind, and spirit. I was the whole person. I was pretty impressed. But the, my point is, is that I may have looked really good on the outside, but inside things were not going well. And I know that is the way for a lot of us. We could be sitting next to each other and we look really good, but inside things aren't going so well. And for me, I was leading to real strong burnout. I even went to the point where I started to exist, to doubt whether God even really existed. Yet God has been so faithful over the years to help me to see that truth. I am not saved by the quality of my faith. I am saved by the object of my faith, and that is Jesus. And God continues to bring this truth home to me this day. Um, A lot of times, and recently, it's just been being in relationship with you. I don't know if I've publicly gotten to say how grateful Ross and I are to be here. You are a wonderful church, a wonderful group of people to be with. You guys encourage and support. Some of you have challenged me to help me grow in this area. And um, I don't know if I get to, I get to say thank you. Thank you. Um, and so recently, God has been continuing to let me know that he loves, loves me and it's unconditional. That my right standing with him is not based on my ability to perform. And it was through a strange encounter that Abraham had with God. So now I have a bit of a history with Abraham because during my teen years when I had that encounter with the grandmother who shared that verse, I was given a plaque with my name on it. It's spiritual meaning and a Bible character that relates to my name's meaning. So, you know, I'm an adolescent. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. What am I, where am I supposed to go? I was puzzled, yet I was drawn to the plaque. I mean, the spiritual meaning of my name is wanderer. You know, and what am I supposed to do with wanderer? You know, like, am I supposed to forget college, join some kind of nomadic commune somewhere? Um, You know, and I was very skeptical of a biblical meaning of my name because I knew that the author of Peter Pan had made up the name Wendy. So how did they get a spiritual meaning? Maybe they took Wendy and they made it windy and wind wanders and they got wanderer, whatever. Um, But then from wanderer, they got the biblical character, which was Abraham. And that seemed appropriate because Abraham, and there we get to see him, was... Um, you know, he left all that he knew and wandered in the wilderness. But what teenage girl wants your biblical role model to be Abraham? 
you know. I mean, I had several issues with Abraham because, first of all, I can't get my lefts and my rights correct. And so when we were in, you know, Sunday school and had to sing that ridiculous song about Father Abraham, right hand, left arm, I was the kid who was so embarrassed because I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why we sung about his sons and why did that have anything to do with me. I mean, Jesus loves you, I could get, but I don't understand the Abraham one. And then second of all, I mean, Abraham, I mean, he's... I mean, I knew he was, a, he was a guy with an old beard. He was willing to knife his own son. He was scary and confusing. He was passive to me. I mean, I know that he didn't stand up for his wife. He didn't stand up to his wife. Um, you know, I wanted, you know, I think maybe every girl, I wanted to have Queen Esther as my role model or give me Mary, you know, even Mary Magdalene because I thought even though she had a sketchy background, she probably had pretty good hair and that was good. So, but no, I was stuck with Abraham. So, um, and you know, in my bedroom, the posters on my wall were Magnum and Sean Cassidy. So when I had to compare the two, Abraham, Magnum, oh well. So that's why, despite my initial disappointment with Abraham, I was just, I was left with a curiosity. I was disappointed, but I was left with a curiosity. So it's really cool for me to see that this story of Abraham that I'm about to share is one of the most pivotal stories in the Bible for me. It's one of the most weird and strange encounters, which I'm drawn to. Um, But it's one of the weird and strange encounters someone had with God. And it encapsulates my understanding of the truth of what the gospel is really all about. This is a story of a covenant that God made with Abraham. And um, so in order to understand this encounter, we have to first understand what a covenant is. You know, um, what did it mean? You know, for us, a legally binding contract may come closest to... um, closest to the concept of a covenant yet a covenant describes a relationship that is much more intimate than a legal relationship it's and it's also more enduring and has more accountability than just a personal relationship so covenant is a blending of both the legal aspects the law and love and the fullness of what a covenant means is challenging in our society because we emphasize individual rights individual happiness my rights come before yours relationships often come second Like in marriage today, you know, you often have two people saying, I'm going to be what I should be as long as and to the degree that you are what you should be. And if you aren't, I'm out of there. But in a covenant relationship, two people say, I will be what I should be whether you are what you should be or not. And therefore, I mean, it's scary to get into a covenant. I don't know about you, but when I was walking down the aisle to marry Ross, and I know you weren't marrying Ross, but when you're, if you got married and were walking down the aisle, I was really, I was crying because I was scared. I knew that it was serious, the vows that I was going to take, and I knew I wasn't going to measure up to them. I know we were asking God into the equation. I, I couldn't fully know I could trust Ross, but I knew that I would never put, consistently put his knees before mine. And so, man, it was a scary, it's scary to walk into a covenant. A covenant only works if both people of the covenant agree to it. If one person says, I'm going to be what I should be, whether you are or not, you can have exploitation or abuse. But when you get a relationship, when both people say, you are more important than my needs, I'm going to give um, you my independence as part of my love. I'm not after meeting my needs, but your needs. I mean, that is a far more fulfilling and deep and life-giving relationship. You know, some of the relationships that we have are more covenantal, like marriage, parents between children, and with some of our friends. I mean, like when our children are sick and we sacrifice to meet their needs, we give up our sleep, we clean, we give up our time. And after the tears and the crying and the cleanup is done, and we get to see them laying sleeping peacefully, 
and they've got their our finger in their little hand and they're just resting and they squeeze it i mean our heart just melts you know when we have sacrificed for somebody it bonds us to them and so that is what a covenant relationship is about and god only relates to us in covenants with all the key people in the old testament from adam and abraham and moses and isaac and david they were all covenants so how do we see our covenant with god what has he made with us so where did god take the covenant with abraham in genesis 12 we see abraham received a blessing god started a relationship with abraham and he asked him to leave his homeland he leave his family go to a land and tell him that god was going to tell him of god makes a promise to abraham about making a great nation from him and through which all people including us will be blessed god would give him a child and land then in genesis 15 time has gone by and abraham was not sure is this promise really going to happen is it going to come true so abraham asked for confirmation how can i know god this is really going to happen what you promised i mean it's a question that we all ask at times so if you can understand what happens in genesis 15 you are at the very heart of what the bible is all about so let's read it but abraham abram said sovereign lord how can i know that i will gain possession of it so the lord said to him bring me a heifer a goat and a ram each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon abram brought all these to him cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other the birds however he did not cut in half then birds of prey came down on the carcasses but abram drove them away and as the sun was setting abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him then the lord said to him know for certain that that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there but i will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions you however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age and in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here for the season of the amorites has not yet reached its full measure so when the sun had set and darkness had fallen a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces on that day the lord made a covenant with abram and said to your descendants i give this land from the wadi of egypt to the great river the euphrates the land of the kenites and all of the other ites okay okay so some of you may be saying like why are you so excited wendy about this passage i mean it it just seems strange and um so what it was saying is god was saying to abram abraham i'm going to bless you and abraham says well i don't know how can i be sure so god says this is what i want you to do i want you to kill some animals cut them put them in pieces arrange them in two rows to make an aisle so that you can walk through them i mean that's utterly confusing to us but it wasn't to abraham because in his day when a great lord wanted to make a covenant with a person of a lower status like a servant that's is what they did animals were slain pieces were arranged and we know from history and archaeology that most often the servant but sometimes the lord would walk through the pieces and by walking through the pieces he was he was proclaiming if i don't do my part if i don't keep my promise may i be cut into pieces like this may i be destroyed may my flesh lay on the ground of the for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field so what they did instead of signing a little wimpy contract they acted out the the curse of the covenant so abraham knew that god was asking him to prepare a covenant ratification ceremony he was making a contract 
you know, I also had to figure out, is this really true? So I looked it up and there was another scripture in Jeremiah where there was a group that um, it describes the unfaithfulness for those that had made a covenant and then they went back on it. So God spoke through Jeremiah the prophet and told him, you have not obeyed me and you violated the covenant. I will treat them like the calf they had cut in two and walked between his pieces. So in Genesis 15:12, we see, okay, the sun was setting. Abraham fell into a deep sleep. Some commentators say it was more like a trance. But a deep darkness had come over him. It crushed him to the ground. There was thick smoke. God spoke about dark things. God explains the history of Abraham's descendants. And finally, a smoking pot and a blazing torch appeared. I was going to label the, the sermon a smoky, smoking pot, but I just, it would have a whole different feel on that. But, I mean, that's really strange. Like, when I, what's a smoking pot and a blazing torch? Why does it come in here? Um, these words, though, are the same words that are used for smoke and blaze, the same words that were used when God came down on Mount Sinai as a smoking, fiery pillar. They are the same words that used to describe God's presence or the pillar of God's presence. So what it means is that God's very presence was passing through those pieces that Abraham prepared. God himself passed through the pieces as he promised to bless Abraham. And that is the gospel. And for me, it explains the gospel as well as anything in the New Testament. Because God went through the pieces. That's the first shock. You know, a lord or a king rarely walked through the pieces. But the second shock that Abraham had was Abraham was never allowed to walk through the pieces himself. God never asked that. The ceremony ended in 1518. God finished that covenant. And that was unheard of, you know, because, I mean, it's amazing for the Lord to walk through the pieces, but for a servant to never walk through, do you know what that meant? Abraham knew what it meant, but he didn't know what he, how it could be. And almost any commentator who has tried to interpret Genesis 15 is also startled because God was, God was making the promise for both he and Abraham. He was taking the curse of the covenant for both of them. God was saying, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, but I will be torn to pieces if you don't keep your promise. Now, if I was Abraham, I would be thinking, like, God, I never actually thought that you would break your promise. The problem is usually with me, almost always with me. Now, how do I know about me? Because you give me a promise, I just don't think I'm going to work hard enough. I don't think I'm going to be able to keep it. I know that you're going to be my God, but I don't know how I'm going to be your person. I'm going to let you down. I just know it. And you're going to get really tired of me because I'm going to keep messing up and I break my promise. I think that you are going to give up on me. So how do I know about me? And what did Abraham experience? God walked through the pieces alone. He did not ask or even allow Abraham to walk through them. And that to me is just magnificent. God is saying, I'm going to go through this for both of us. And to me, this is the gospel. It is not a cooperative effort. It is not God helps those who help themselves. It is not a partnership. God comes through and says, I'm going to take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. And he is saying, Abraham, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the bargain, but may I be cut off if you don't do yours. I'm going to take the curse of the covenant for both of us. I'm going to bless you even if it means that I have to die. And it did mean that because we know centuries later, darkness came down on Calvary. And in the thick darkness, as Jesus was being torn to pieces, why was he doing it? Because he was taking on this covenant curse. In, in Galatians, Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us so that the blessing given to Abraham 
might come to all of us who believe through Jesus Christ. So with his perfect life, Jesus completely, perfectly fulfilled the terms of the covenant and he earned that blessing. And with his sacrificial death, he completely fulfilled the curse of the covenant and that leaves a blessing for you and for me and anyone who asks in faith for it. So until we can grasp this covenant, the truth of the gospel, we have a tendency to look at the law or these conditions of the covenant in two ways. First, we can look at it like, you know, the law is something I have to obey or God's going to get me. You know, the blessings of God are conditional. And then when you mess up, you feel really condemned. Or sometimes you could look at it like, well, God just loves everybody unconditionally. The law is a good thing, but it's not something that I have to take very seriously. But when we understand the conditions of the covenant and that Jesus fulfilled them at infinite high cost to himself, I mean, they're to be taken seriously. I mean, he died for them. And that's really important because with all of our might, we want to obey. And when we fail and we will fail and we do fail, we know that there's absolutely no condemnation for us that are in Christ Jesus. Our obedience is just our way of saying thank you. So when you understand the gospel, you resist sin like crazy but you don't ever sense condemnation or despair when you fall into it. So this kind of gospel, this gospel leads to an absolute, absolute trust. You know, it's scary to get married, like I just said I was, because two people are saying, I'm going to give everything for you, but how do you know? How do they know? How do they know about you? And we are not sure if they're going to do it or, or that we're going to do it. But when Jesus Christ calls you into a covenantal relationship, do you know what he is saying to you? He's saying, I want to marry you. I want to come into a legally binding, intimate love relationship with you. I want to marry you, and you don't have to be uncertain because I've already proven that I will be faithful when you are not faithful. You know, um, I teach college as well, and a lot of them share their religious beliefs with me. And also is getting to know some of my children's friends. They come from a variety of different faiths. They're Muslim, Hindu, um, Buddhist, and a variety of different things. And the more I listen to my students and to these, and to these other kids, I become more aware of how unique our Christianity is from any other religion. I mean, it makes me think about Jesus and I compare him to other gods. You know, last week one of my students was thinking about becoming Buddhist. And so I looked up the Buddha's last words he said before he died. And this is what he said. Oh, monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. So work hard to gain your own salvation. You know, I don't mean any disrespect to those that are following Buddhism, but I mean, that's his final words to his followers. Uh, compare that to the moment of darkness with Jesus. In John 19:30. when he, Jesus, had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I mean, what a difference. I mean, every other religion, you have to work in order to get to the other side, if there is another side. But in our gospel, Jesus did it all. It isn't anything that we can earn. It's nothing that we can do to earn that. There are no works for Christians to do in order to receive the salvation. And that's one of the reasons why we have a religion that is utterly different from any other one. In summary, one of my favorite speakers is Tim Keller. He is a pastor of a church in Manhattan. And he describes the difference between religion and gospel that helps me recognize when I'm going to that default mode, when I'm adhering more to religion than to the gospel. And he made, there's several points that he makes, but 
three of them are, under religion, we obey, therefore we're accepted. Whereas the gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Under religion, you're motivated based upon fear and insecurity. Whereas in the gospel, our motivation is based on a grateful joy. And under religion, I obey God in order to get things from him, the blessings, the protection. But with the gospel, I obey God to get God, to delight and to resemble him. When I was listening to over and over, I I would just go over the, the thing about watching Abraham and God and he passed through the carcasses. That hit the gospel, hit inside me so hard. I felt like I was the Grinch at the very end of the story when he's on that precarious position at the top of the mountain. He had stolen all the gifts and he was hearing them singing in Whoville, singing, and they had no gifts. And you know, when I understood the gospel, it, it was like my heart grew three times larger that day. Um, so today, I wanted to take a moment for us to worship this image of a covenant God the covenant that he made with us. In Ross's life verse, he described worship as something as recognizing what your heart is ascribing value to and that transformation happens when we transfer our ultimate value to God. So for me, it's been a a tendency to have fear or anxiety. My main question I ask, is everything going to be okay? Is everyone going to be okay? What do I need to do? And I start ramping. And at that moment, to, to worship is to transfer those fears and those thoughts over to God. So let's practice that. Let's transfer more of our thoughts to him. So I'd like us just to take a time to imagine this encounter. So for some of you, it'll be easier to picture if you close your eyes. But let's just picture what it would have been like to have been there when God made that covenant with Abraham. Imagine yourself being next to Abraham as he waited with the pieces of the animals. And he's waiting and wondering, what is God going to do? Picture darkness coming down and thick smoke surrounding you as God is walking through those carcasses. What is going on in Abraham's mind when he is not asked or even allowed to walk through those pieces? As you see yourself standing there, What goes on in your mind when God does not ask or even allow you to walk through the animal pieces? What is God saying to you about the covenant that he has made with you? When you feel like you don't deserve to be in a relationship with Jesus, remember, God is never backing out of this covenant. He paid all the consequences for you to be in a relationship with him. It is not based on your ability to keep this covenant, but it's based on his ability. So I invite you into a deeper relationship with this covenant-making God. And maybe like me, you need to be reminded that salvation is received. It is not achieved. All you need to do is to believe and accept it, to live your life trusting not in your ability to perform, but in the perfect work of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the unconditional covenant between you and him. So let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. 
you have done a perfect and a complete work, and we are grateful. You rock our world. You are the someone that we can trust. You never back out. You will never, ever, 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 ever leave us or forsake us. We are so grateful. And so in our gratefulness, Lord, we give you ourselves. Jesus' name. Wow, isn't that beautiful? It's hard for us to get past that. Uh, God helps those who help themselves, isn't it? Some of you are sitting here today and, and you've been following Christ, but you can relate to Wendy's story of the fear, of the control, of the need to ask that question, is everything going to be okay? And some of you here today have been unconvinced of your faith in God because of those same very things. What does it take to measure up? Some of you have decided not to make a decision to follow Christ because you've said, I'm not measuring up yet. Until I get my life right, I can't come to Him. But the point of today's message, the point of God fulfilling that covenant in the way He did, He's not asking you to clean up before you come to Him. He's not asking you to be good enough. He's not asking you to be free of those things that you do sometimes, maybe even every day. Because He's already taken that stuff. He's already taken the condemnation for that stuff. We're celebrating baptism today. Uh, this service, we actually have three baptisms that are going to be, that were pre-planned. And I'm going to invite you to consider if you've never made the step of baptism, if you're here and you've been caught in religion, I'm going to invite you, if you feel like God's ready, if He's tugging on your heart, if you, if you are convinced that this God is real, that He really wants to come to you with this kind of love, then I'm inviting you to get baptized today too. Just come on up. We've got, a, we've got a change of clothes, or if you want to get dunked in the clothes you're in, you can get dunked in the clothes you're in. We'll just ask you to take your cell phone out of your pocket, and we'll pray for you. But you can come over and either talk to myself or Scott or Wendy as, as, as we continue to worship. But let's just worship this God. I mean, that's our only response. Our only response is gratefulness and worship. And there is nothing more powerful to transform your life, to bring cleanness than that. And even as we celebrate baptism, it's just such a great symbol of this. It's a symbol of complete surrender to the God's work. We can't do anything in going under the water. And to the fact that He Himself has indeed already taken all of the muck, all of the mess, all of the sin off your life. He's washed it clean and He's just asking you to come out of the water and to worship Him daily. And to remember to follow him and worship him daily. So would you just stand? Would you join in worship? And if you feel God tugging at your heart, don't wait. Do it today. Get baptized. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest 
www.thepeopleshow.org.